Hello, everyone. This is Eve, and the podcast is just about to start. Um, But I wanted to jump on here really quick first because there's a few things to say about this episode that feel really important to me today. So we're adding it on at the last minute. I am about to play an episode that records this fantastic time that I had with David Barry, a fertility fraud advocate uh, and all around cool dude. So there's two things you need to know about this episode. One is that we recorded it in two separate sessions. I had to run an errand. He had to bathe his toddler. So we took a break and we met up another day. So there's this like sort of funky transition in the recording. You'll hear it, but there'll be music playing. But that's what happened there. Um, So don't worry about it. It's not a mistake. But secondly, and much more importantly, something happened this week that feels very relevant to this very episode. Uh, David, you'll hear, talks about determining using DNA that he is the offspring, one of many, of Dr. Morris Wortman from Rochester, New York, Uh, which means that he and his family, David and his family, uh, is very affected by fertility fraud. Well, a news headline caught my eye the other night. Dr. Wortman died this weekend in a plane crash. And there is a sensationalist side of me that feels like just, whoa, that's really wild. What happened? Crazy. And Twitter certainly has a lot to say about the headlines about a fertility fraud doctor crashing in a homemade airplane. However, uh, I also want to acknowledge that this man really was someone's husband and father and many people's doctor. And a focus of a lot of very mixed emotions and experiences for a large group of siblings who have been working for a long time for justice and even admission. And now they'll never get it. So when I contacted David this week to check in with him about playing the episode, he said, yeah, of all the twists and turns of this experience, I really didn't see this one coming. But he also said to go forward with the episode. So here we are. It's Friday, June 2nd. I hope you get something out of it and that you understand why it felt important to offer this like extra layer of information. I'll be thinking about David this weekend and all his siblings as they grapple with this new plot twist in their story. Hello from 35,000 feet. This is Everything's Relative on an Airplane. A special podcast episode coming to you from seat 15D. This is a podcast about DNA discoveries. I'm Eve Sturgis, your host. If you don't know what I mean by DNA discoveries, that's okay. I think you'll figure it out really quick. By the end of this episode, if you still don't understand, that's okay. Just listen to another episode. After two episodes, if you're still feeling unsure, uh, follow me on Instagram at Everything's Relative Podcast. And wow, if after all that, you still don't understand, I don't know what to say. So call me. (laughs) We'll talk about it. Uh, I am on an airplane right now. That's new and different for us. My husband, Kaylin, and I are headed back east for a wedding weekend, excited to see friends. And we're going to eat pizza and we're going to sleep in without the kids. That's right. We came alone. Watch out, Brooklyn. We're going to be wild. Speaking of wild... One area of DNA discovery life I did not know that I would be a part of or learn all about is this world of fertility fraud. We've talked about it before here, but in case this is your first time with me, fertility fraud 
is when a doctor misrepresents his role in a fertility procedure. That's kind of vague, and I just made it up right now. I don't know if there's a more official or thorough definition, but what we're talking about here on Everything's Relative is a doctor secretly and deceptively using his own sperm to impregnate a patient during fertility treatment. Um, As DNA testing becomes more widely available, all these offspring are discovering this lie. They're discovering many, many siblings, uncovering unethical and nefarious methods used by doctors in the name of success rates, I guess. I guess that's why a doctor would do it. Um, And to top it all off, they're discovering that this practice is not technically against the law in many states here in America. This is how I learned that if there isn't a law against something, even if it's deceptive, even if it's clearly unethical, there are no consequences. If you've been around here for a while, um, you've heard my session with Jessica Stavina. She was the first fertility fraud story I ever heard about. Her mom's fertility doctor is Dr. Kim McMorris. He's a fertility fraud doctor. He's still practicing in Texas, by the way. Um, and then a few weeks ago, I talked to Jessica's half-sister, also um, a offspring of Dr. Kim McMorris. Um, that's Eve Wiley, and she is an outspoken advocate for, for fertility regulation. She talks about working at the legislative level to get laws passed to make this illegal. And now, today, I'm going to talk with David Barry. He is the adult offspring of a Dr. Morris Wartman, a doctor working in New York, still practicing, um, ostensibly, ostensibly no longer using his own sperm. Um, but who knows? Uh, anyway. Um, David had the unique experience of figuring out that his biological father was not the gamete donor that his parents had chose, but his mom's doctor. Sidebar, David and I talk about it briefly, but I don't um, linger on it, but I'm seeing this pattern of these doctors, and I think part of it is default of the profession, um, but they're also the doctors who deliver the babies, and there is something fascinating to me about the like ego experience of a man who's using his own sperm and then also delivering those babies that he's pretending are not his. Um, Fascinating. I'd love to get in the brains of these men and peel back some layers. Anyway, David and I talk a little about the complicated psychological layers of donor discovery of parenthood and how he's working to make changes alongside others like Eve Wiley He's heading into Capitol buildings to talk directly with lawmakers. Um, But I don't need to tell you all the things we talked about because you can just listen for yourself. So here's me, me and David Barry, hanging out, talking about fertility fraud. This is Everything's Relative. I'm Eve Sturgis. I'll be right back. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So for so a little bit of uh, context was um, I'm I'm the product of fertility fraud. Okay, Eve Wiley. Yes, it's I've, all coming back to me. Okay, there yep. you go. Yep, 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 yep. So if you if you know Eve, you know you know me. Essentially, um, she's a huge part of 
um, a lot of parts of my story. Are you related to Eve Wiley? Are you no half siblings? Okay, so you are you telling me there's more than one fertility fraud? <laughs> it's with great it's great regret that i tell you the, the answer is yes <laughs> okay okay yeah. so, so all right so tell me when did you find out and how can you tell me a little bit about your journey up to now yeah so i like a lot a lot of people bought a, an ancestry.com dna test because it was on sale <laughs> and it was you know it was christmas of 2016 i actually remember very vividly, very vividly where or I was because it was funny. I was actually hearing a story from my sister's uh, boyfriend at the time. It's her her husband now. He was telling us a friend of his had ordered an ancestry test, and in the I'm from Rochester, New York. the The town that we are from, in particular, has a great amount of pride around Italian American heritage. It's just a big deal. And this guy had an Italian uh, family coat of arms tattooed on his. Tattooed. You know, oh man, yep. it's always the ones with the tattoos. It okay. is. They're <laughs> they're always the ones just asking for it, right? Yep. And you know the the silver chains, the leather jackets, all the, the whole thing. And he discovered that he was in fact more Irish than Italian when this uh, ancestry test came back. And given the context of where we were from, that might not be really funny, you know, in a lot of other places, but it was hilarious to to us as as locals in this town called Greece of all places. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, that's hilarious. Don't worry, I get it. Yeah, I know a lot. So, yeah, but that's yeah. <laughs> so we yeah. we had a good laugh at it, and mm -hmm. I, you know, in that moment, I, you know, my my whole family was there as well, and I remember saying to my dad, which ironically remains, you know, still true to this day, that he does not know a lot about his father, um, or or where the last name Barry, uh, which is my last name, comes from. Now it's not a super hard one to Google and figure that it's probably you know Irish British, mm -hmm. but uh, but in a literal sense, you know, didn't know where those those ancestors or that lineage came from. And I was like, well, hey, Dad, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna order this test and and see if we can find that out, you know, where where your dad is from. And and for some context, my father's father, I guess my grandfather, passed away at the age of forty-one. He was he was a young man, young. Um, and my father was young himself when his when his father passed, so never really had many memories of him or or details to go on. So, anyways, you know, I'm drinking a bunch of wine and saying, yeah, I'm going to order this test. Test comes in the mail, spit in the vial, and the results come back. I kind of even forgot. Yes. Question. When you said to your dad, hey, you don't know a lot. I'm going to order this test. It's on sale. Did he hesitate? Did he blink? Did the he... poker face was there. All right. He's good at that. Okay. He, Mr. Barry's time, a, stoic, a stoic man. He is. In fact, that is a, a very good descriptor of him before this, this event and certainly after. And yeah, I there was nothing about that situation that made me think I was about to do something insane. I thought it was about to do something that you know most Americans who get these things would do, which is, oh, this is interesting. I'm curious to find out. And so th I think it was you know three or so months passed. It was in March of 2017. I I logged in just to see. Oh yeah, I remember I I took this thing and the results were there, and nothing stuck out in the sense where I was immediately hit with. Um, you know, a, a revelation. I know the Ancestry.com and 23andMe, probably all of them have changed a little bit, you know, in the six-ish years uh, since then. But at the time, I did find two things that didn't really make a ton of sense for me. One was that I was 52% European Jewish. That did not make sense because on my mom's side of the family, uh, I, I knew with certainty that I was um, uh, German and Dutch. 
But as I clicked on the the rabbit's hole to kind of understand how you might be European Jewish, there was some qualities of you know Germanic uh, roots that I was like, okay, well, you start to rationalize it, right? Because when you get the results, you're not thinking absolutely right. Yeah, and you're like, there were Jews in Germany. Right. I can remember right. one incredibly huge historical event about that. So <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like there's this. a something ringing a bell, right? So exactly, I did what I would have expected of myself in that moment, which was to begin to rationalize why that might be the case. The other thing that I saw that was a little bit harder to rationalize was I was unequivocally a high DNA match for a woman. She was my my highest DNA match more than um, one of my first cousins and one of my uncles on, on the website. And at the time, Ancestry would give you a a series of options to consider that were you know your dna connection in this case it said she was either an aunt a first cousin or a half sibling and again you're going with what seems rational at that point mm -hmm. so i immediately say well half sibling doesn't make sense um an aunt probably doesn't make sense a first cousin that could make sense because i um you know after having a conversation with her she had revealed that she was the product of a sperm donor and i thought to myself well I have an uncle who got out of the Marines in the early eighties. Dude. Bouncing done. around, that right? Would, like, yeah, that'd be the end this of this. Is, this is probably him. Mm -hmm. She and I exchanged a few emails and I don't know if I was ignorant, naive, or choosing to be both. Um, probably, the, probably the latter in September of that year. So now we fast forward six months later, there's a lot of moving pieces here. So pause me if I, if I go off the rails a little bit, my, then girlfriend, now my wife, is adopted, as is her younger sister. Both of them are adopted from different uh, families. They've always known that. My my girlfriend's sister came over and, and had told us that she discovered through an ancestry test her uh, biological half-sister, and through her, she discovered her biological father. And it was not a huge surprise, uh, because we always knew that, that those people likely existed in some capacity. But when she started to list some of the, the numbers from the ancestry results saying, oh, I have 1,100 centimorgans in common with my half-sister, that's how I knew that we were half-sisters, the wheels immediately hit a screeching halt in my mind. And I'm thinking, I feel like I shared more DNA in common with this girl that I matched with than she has just matched with her okay. half-sister. Alarm bells are ringing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm listening and, you know, off of one side of my my body and the other i'm opening my laptop and trying to pull up the results again and i'm realizing again that this woman and i have 1500 centimorgans in common and i just feel that not in my stomach I, i'm still at this point not clear on what it is that i have discovered but i know i have discovered somebody's secret mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a week later um so mind you you know all along i've been keeping my parents apprised of this in retrospect i know that they were hoping i would maybe drop it Oh man. I didn't know, you know, I was running headfirst into what I didn't I didn't know. A week later, this uh this woman and her name is is Morgan. Um she and I uploaded our our DNA data to a website uh called Jedmatch mm -hmm. and it has the ability to, you know, for those listening who have not heard of it, the ability to do a, a number of things. It, it gets very granular into like your individual, you know, 23 strands of DNA, but it also will help you match potentially with people who are on different DNA sites. 
in at this point we matched on ancestry neither of us had been on 23 and me but we found somebody who was an equal match for us who was a user on 23 and me and, and, she, and is she a part of this conversation with you at this point are you like are you guys so yes morgan and i kind of had becoming been, friends in this mystery sleuthing yeah, thing of like i would say you know between march and, and really may over the course of two months she and i exchanged you know quite a few messages mm -hmm. and i i thought you know i had some some ideas about who her biological father might be she in in hindsight had some some different thoughts uh about how that might be and you know to no fault of either of of ours we ultimately just didn't communicate as often, but we definitely picked things back up in September when I had said, okay, I know that there's a secret here and I, I need to find out what it is. And when she and I discovered that there was another match to us, um, that there were three of us who shared enough DNA to be half siblings, I I felt unwell <laughs> because I the things that I thought were possible was that either my father had donated sperm without ever telling my mother around the same time that I was born. Oh, or, that's a good one. Okay. Which I was an option. Uh-huh. Sure. Right. But you you suspend, you know, belief the things and that you, you go with. Yeah. Yep. Totally. And the other thing I was afraid of is that maybe my mother had either had an affair or used a sperm donor without my father's knowledge. Um for for any number of reasons. I had known that my parents had struggled to conceive naturally but that was really the extent of what I knew. I assumed some pretty hard to swallow things. Um, and I'm, I guess, in some ways fortunate to to say that the following day, uh, after we discovered uh, a half, uh, a match between the two of us, Morgan and I, we found a, a male who matched to us, who's chosen not to be involved, so I won't mention his name. Um, my father called me and said, I know you've been digging into this DNA stuff and I need to let you know that you're not going to find what you're looking for. And hmm. the the pause between that and the next line was maybe a second at most, but in my mind, it was rapid fire playing through all of these things that I had been considering over the past yeah. several months. Isn't it amazing how many thoughts can go through your mind in a, sec a second was, on this earth? Yeah, it was, it was pretty surreal. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of push back somehow what what I felt like he was about to say and and he told me that I that he's not my biological father that I'm not his biological son and that the very significant part of my um you know my birth story that was left out for me was yes knowing my parents had struggled to conceive naturally but that in order to start their family my parents did use the help of a sperm donor and that as you can tell, I, I did everything I could both logically and perhaps, you know, subconsciously right. to not consider that option. And the irony of it is when that happened, when I did hear the, the truth of it all, it made far more sense than I felt comfortable with because I don't look like my father. My younger cool. sister does, but oddly enough, she's also conceived through a donor and it was just rationalizations. But I'm also not very much like him at all. I, I love my father and I have a great relationship with him, but we're we're different. And so there was that ra rational part of my mind, you know, wrapping my head around it. But it was as emotional, I think, as you know, somebody would expect. I was a couple days before my, I think, thirty second or thirty third birthday, and 
you know, I don't know what the right time is to to say, oh, I shouldn't be shell shocked by it. But I can tell you, you know, at 32, it was it was a shell shock. Yeah, that'll suck the feeling. breath right out of you. It it definitely did. Um, and and I thought that was going to be the you know the big event and maybe the right. and that's the end of the story. And that's the end of the story. And, and, and the mystery. Yeah. Oh man. And then womp womp and a plot twist. Exactly. Yeah, sequel. It started off great. Um, there was there was some difficulty emotionally for my my father in particular, and it felt like I was almost doing some reverse parenting. Um, mm -hmm. And I understood in that moment that I was still who I was, and my father and mother. I'm grateful, you know, have, have been together almost forty four years, and they they raised me alongside my sister and everything that I could hope for. Um, but I know that my father the reason that he had dreaded this so much was he felt that my sister and I might look at him differently and feel that he was not our father. And I did everything I could to reassure him that nothing had really changed, even if it was an emotionally, you know, significant event. But I know that took some time for him. That was probably the hardest part was, mm -hmm. was navigating that. I relate to weeks... that wholly. I relate to that really, really personally. Yeah. Yeah, my heart still aches when I think about what he must have felt. Yeah, That's... it's tough to watch parents suffer. You know, I yeah. think always, but to watch them yeah. go through an, a, a, an emotional thing, it's yeah, it is kind of reverse parenting. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, you do, even as you get older, in a lot of ways, you still perceive. All right, so you recognize your parents are human at some point, mm -hmm. but there's still an aura about them where they're just not going to be affected by the things that you're affected by at a, on an emotional level. Yeah, I agree. I, it was next. It's like a next level. Like, yes, of course, I knew my parents were human and I had gone through all sorts of like <laughs> like pedestal crumbling moments in my life. Right. But that one was that one was and is still a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And we it, it took time. Mm -hmm. it, it definitely took time. On the flip side, I was really delighted by the two people I discovered were my half siblings. In fact, we all ended up meeting each other, not because we'd gone out of, out of our way to do it, but we were all going to actually end up in the same place at the same time two weeks later and decided like, okay, uh, we should meet each other. And, and we did. And to this day, I have a wonderful relationship with both of them. And I would say the the first seeds that were planted over that weekend, having spent with them towards the fact that there might be something more at play with this were planted as early as, as that weekend, even though none of us really realized it at first. And that was a simple, you know, question of like, well, did, you know, did your parents tell you, did you always know that you were donor conceived? Um, you know, what was their story? And as it turned out, um, both of them knew, you know, from, from an early age that, that they were donor conceived and they they knew the story about the you know the the clinic that their their mothers went to the name of the doctor who um who you know their mothers had gone to for fertility treatment to you know to get uh, a sperm donation and um and who also delivered them as as newborns same doctor and same doctor and so i that's spoke quite, that, that, sorry that's like yeah. a, that's i just now that you're saying that that's not the first time I've heard that. So that's a thing is for like these fertility doctors to also sort of be their sort of fertility and OBGYN practitioners is what's going on, right? Correct. Like now, I didn't think, you know, in speaking to my mother 
as I did, you know, after this conversation, um, that was not unusual for for the time, or at least not at the time in Rochester, New York, where we were yeah. from. But I, you know, was maybe a little surprised when she said, "Yeah, that's the same doctor who I went to, and the same, you know, same doctor who delivered you." So okay, um, all of a sudden, you know, the three of us share this this commonality, but again, in context, it didn't seem all that weird. Fast forward uh, almost a year. It's just the three of us and we've got this cool thing going and my family has sort of, you know, recovered, if you will. And there's harmony, <laughs> so <laughs> to speak. <laughs> and in fact, it was a, it was a day in August of, uh, of 2018 that all three of our families got together for a, for a barbecue. And it was to this day, one of the most special nights of my entire life hmm. to just to think that a year prior that something like that would have been in the cards was just inconceivable. And it was so special. The next morning I get a text message from my, my half brother uh, with Morgan and I in it. It's the three of us saying uh, there's another match and it's a, uh, it's, you know, it's this woman, this, you know, this is her name, so on and so forth. And I, you know, I was blindsided by that because perhaps naively I had thought, oh, it's just the three of us. We've landed on right. this, you know, little island and and this is great. Morgan uh, was asleep at the time when she woke up. She started texting, um, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And realized that this girl that she had um, that we had learned that we were matched with was, in fact, her childhood best friend that they lived on the same street and that she had a twin sister that the three of them were, were the three closest friends growing up. Um, goosebumps just went from like the top of my head to the, whoa, to the bottom of my toes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. The, the way I think of it in retrospect is it was like surviving a, a serious earthquake and, you know, everything's calm again and then an aftershock comes that you're just not expecting yeah did not see that part coming i i definitely did not and and frankly i didn't have this the personal connection to it the way that that morgan did sure. that one hit very very close to home for her that's when i started to think I, and again maybe you know slightly naive or or wishing against what might be very logical you know, Occam's razor is that philosophical principle that the most logical explanation is usually the, you know, the right one. Right. Um, but I just, I couldn't swallow, you know, much of any of that at the point. I, I really felt disoriented by that. I'll fast forward over what, you know, over the next few months, there were a couple more. The So at that point, there were five. Number six uh, came into the picture. Number seven was a middle school classmate of mine. We sat next to each other in Italian class because our dads are Italian. What? And this except we're is, not. I mean, Eve Eve Wiley's story is, is so similar with the in the small town feel of it, but like this is the nightmare. It it got very close in the scenarios where you hear people say, well, what about you know the incest if, concern, yeah, right? And they're totally. saying, oh well, well, how could that happen? Well, I I am in a a very living you know proof mm -hmm. that anything yeah i mean it just could it just it's just you never mind you just said it <laughs> it yep. just could have happened it, like it it could have happened we'll we'll yeah. fill in whatever blanks there are yeah at that point it became really and i should also acknowledge at this point that we learned you know 
all of our, our mothers had gone to the same fertility doctor. And when you started to have a sample set of us at this point, up to seven, looking at pictures of us at this point, having known what the doctor looked like, what started to feel like a, this is crazy type of scenario uh-huh. started to feel terrifyingly viable that we resembled this guy and that all of our mothers had saw him. And at this point between a small window of like three years. Yeah. You're all the same age. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, um, and it it feels almost callous to gloss over the fact that the number eventually swells to, you know, 10, 11, 12 or whatever. Um, I, I just couldn't, it was like a dog that gets, you know, something in his, in his fangs and just won't let go. And that's just kind of how I felt about this whole situation that I just, I believed that this was a possibility and I didn't want to leave it as an unanswered question. I felt like I owed it to, you know, to myself, frankly, um, from a, from a selfish perspective, but I also recognized you know, there are so many of us and probably even more <laughs> that we that don't know that this is, you know, true for them as well. And I just I needed to to get a resolution to it. This is where Eve Wiley, you know, comes into my story. So I had been keeping a blog about my experiences um on a WordPress website, barrychronicles.com. Mm-hmm. If you want to go visit it. Okay. <laughs> shameless we'll shameless it plug. Yeah. yeah, let's do it. Very <laughs> B-E-R-R-Y, yeah, like like <laughs> okay. the fruit. Yeah. And and so I had started, you know posting things that frankly had been forms of therapy for me as I had been going through it of just being able to get feelings that were a mess in my head onto paper where they started to make sense or on digital paper, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, a writer from the New York Times was directed to my blog and reached out to me. At this point, I had started to acknowledge that I had suspicions about um, who my biological father might be without ever naming him because I recognize obviously the the weight of an accusation like that if I were wrong. Um, and this, this reporter from the Times um, connected me to Eve, who was able to introduce me to a, a group called DNA Angels. And they're a wonderful group of women uh, for those you know listeners who hopefully are not going through the same thing. But if you are and you have questions, an excellent nonprofit organization that will do everything they can to help you solve uh, these riddles, which is a, a gentle way of referring mm-hmm. to them as, as riddles. They ultimately, so that I gave them access to my my DNA uh, results through through Ancestry, and they were able to do some quick homework and said, ultimately, look, we can confirm that this doctor was a relative of yours five generations ago, but in the Jewish you know communities, that's not super uncommon with a lot of intermarrying uh, in you know first cousins, second cousins, and things like that historically. There's just too much missing data. And the only way you're really going to confirm if it is him is if you get one of his known children, um, in this case, you know, a, a child that he, you know, had with his wife and, and raised um, to take a DNA test and and be able to confirm if you're that child's half sibling, then, you know, then it would confirm that he's your biological father. In my mind, I'm thinking, what sane person is going to pick up a phone call from me in the first place? let alone agree to take a, a DNA test um, that would confirm, you know, what my suspicions are. And I, I believed so little in that being a possible outcome. Yeah. I'm like, I'm imagining out. this is when you guys all start strategizing how to get toothbrushes out of the, out of the garbage right, or something right. that, like there's just no way there's no way. And, and we gonna... did. Oh yeah. We, we thought of having <laughs> someone go to his office and picking up, you know, a, an empty coffee cup totally, or like you know, offering him a drink of water. And exactly. Yeah. Well, much to my surprise, 
I made that phone call and the, the, the daughter that I called picked up the phone. I was prepared to leave a voicemail. I was yeah. not prepared to have a conversation. Yeah. What generation is she from? We don't answer the phone anymore. What yeah, are you doing? I know. Well, as it happens, she and I are two weeks apart, uh, which is it, which is interesting um, uh, for uh, a number of reasons as well. But she picked up my call and I told her what I knew to be true. I would say that my dishonesty was perhaps of omission. Um, I left out what I thought was possible. But what I told her in a literal sense was true, is that I believe we are perhaps at a minimum cousins of some sort, but I just, I don't know for sure. And I would be able to confirm it if she was willing to take a DNA test. And to my surprise, she agreed to do that. And in a story of, you know, shocks and, and turns and stuff like that, which I know is, is common for, for guests on your show and, and certainly for listeners, um, we hung up and about two hours later, I got a text message from her and she said, I found your blog, which is the one I just referenced, where I've been writing at length about my suspicions without naming people. And I'm almost certain I know who your father is. <gasps> and I got chills because it none of this was was expected. I, I Of all the ways I thought this was going to go, it was, in my mind, it was the complete opposite of how that happened. She and I agreed to FaceTime each other a little bit later on, and she acknowledged to me that she had suspicions uh dating back to her childhood about not necessarily about this but about um you know her father potentially pushing ethical boundaries as a as a physician and when she came across the blog and some of the you know the anecdotes that i had written it clicked for her and i can't speak for her um but it was it was obvious that the intuition that she had was was really meaningful uh to the point where she was you know willing to articulate her her thoughts on what it could mean. Whoa. So we ultimately agree to, you know, I send that test out in the mail and overnight it as quickly as I can get it to her and she takes it. And of course it's, you know, it's going to be several weeks before we can get those results in the mail. So it leaves this, you know, three ish week window where we're just sort of suspended in air between, you know, one cliff and another mm -hmm. twiddling our thumbs and all those sorts of things. Um, I, I might as well just pack in this because I know this is another very unique uh, situation, which is she asked me if I had any interest, like, you know, what were my my motivations behind this? And the reality was I'd, I'd thought about that as much as I could. And the reality was um, at the time, my wife was pregnant with our first child. And I knew how much my life had been shaped over the past you know couple of years by by this event and not knowing mm -hmm. and and sure a lot of my motivations were were purely selfish i i acknowledge i just wanted to know but at the same time i didn't want to have my son come into this world and hand him questions that were unanswered i wanted to give him answers in a way that i didn't have them to the point where when he learns you know what's true one day he's he's going to think it's so inconsequential that it doesn't ever matter to him. And that's exactly what I, I hope for. Um, but she, in that, you know, question had said, well, you know, do you, are you trying to talk to him? Do you want to have a relationship with him? Um, and I said, I think I'm interested in learning or understanding his motivations, but no, I have, I have no desire, you know, for a relationship. Well, she of all people was the one who encouraged me to reach out to him. Hmm. So, so I did. I sent him an email. I didn't 
Um, I didn't tell him the reason that I was reaching out. Instead, I gave him something similar to how I handled it with her that was true, but with an omission. The irony with this is my adopted wife was raised Jewish. And, you know, around the time that we became engaged is when I discovered that I had biologically Jewish, uh, you know, roots Mm -hmm. and that we were going to be raising, as I called it, a, in air quotes, a Jewish son together. And I, to this day, have uh, a version of imposter syndrome as it relates to calling myself Jewish, because it's not as simple as the joke that began here of saying, oh, you're Italian, you're not Irish, Mm -hmm. go have some spaghetti, right? Um, Those cliches could be, you know, almost cute and charming. But the Jewish identity is wrapped in so many other nuances that I I felt like an imposter, you know, identifying in any way as Jewish and and going on to raise a Jewish son. As it happens, um, this this doctor and I'll I'll name him in a few seconds as it you know connects these dots um, is a is a known outspoken voice in the Jewish community in, in the Rochester area and he's and he's well respected um, in those groups. And I felt like he would be an interesting person to seek advice from, or at least that was the the card that I wanted to play. So that's the email that I wrote. That's true. That's all true. And it was true. A half hour later, my phone rings and, and it's him. And I was, again, I was caught off guard. I, I was expecting maybe an email response, but certainly not a, a quick phone call like that. And he was cordial. He was warm. He was gentle. Um, but he did ask me in the early going, you know, how, how did you get my, you know, my, my information again? You know, it wasn't an accusing type of question. It was cool. a curious question. And I, as delicately as I could explained, you know, I recently learned, you know, over the past couple of years that I was donor conceived and um, that, you know, my biological father is, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish. And, you know, as it happens, my mom used you as her fertility doctor and you, you know, played a significant role in having my, my parents start their family uh, recently, I have come to believe that that role might have been more than, you know, any of us originally thought. And I recognize what I'm about to suggest might feel like a wild accusation, but I believe you might be my biological father. And he paused for a beat and said, well, you know, unfortunately, although the records from that time would have been, you know, long lost to, to history, which is probably true to, to an extent. Um, and I understand why you might reach that, you know, conclusion, you know, it's a, but there's a lot of, you know, Ashkenazi Jewish doctors, you know, who were in residency at that time and, you know, University of Rochester, so on and so forth. Um, you know, I'm sorry, I can't be of more help with that. Um, but, you know, I encourage, you know, I, I wish you luck on your journey to find, to find that out. Now I had sort of my proverbial fork in the road. I could have acknowledged, I could have told him what I was about to find out or I could, carry on with the conversation and try to get what it is that I originally came for, which was maybe something that would provide context for an explanation right. as to his motivations, even if he wouldn't literally explain like, oh, this is why I did it. Um, and, but something else occurred to me too, which is he did not deny it, that it was even a possibility. If, if I was a physician who had never used my sperm in place of a donor's to impregnate one of my patients, I would have said, no, I'm not your biological father because this act never happened. But he, but he never said that. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, like, there's like, I haven't, sorry, I have to take a breath. I have not, like, <laughs> br- I haven't been breathing for like four minutes. Uh, well, that, that was me on that phone call. I should go yeah. 
I can't like, there's, I mean, I so much we like, there's so much because I've like stunned. So I'm just stunned. Um, <laughs> I'm stunned. I mean, and I've heard so many of these stories and I continue to be stunned because, uh, but um, did you, my question for this very second is, did you feel kind of like crushed or disappointed in who he was as a person when the, when this weird twisted lie came out of his mouth? No, okay. I was, I was expecting it. Oh, frankly. okay. All right. Because in my mind, he He's not expecting if, if I'm calling him with the question that that means I don't have the information to prove it. And he's a he's a bright guy. There's not a scenario that I can imagine where he would willfully divulge that information unless he was forced right. to. Which so I, suggests that he knew that it was ethically. Fuzzy, bad or wrong. Thank you for, for saying so, because that is the same conclusion that I have arrived at, which is. Why are none of these physicians willing to go on record or a couple have, uh, mm -hmm. but ones who are long retired and, you know, recognize yeah. there's no state laws coming after them. But if it's not a big deal and it's not an ethical violation, then why is it a secret for them still? Why not yeah. just acknowledge it? Like what ended up happening was something that if I had none of the context I've just shared that I would, I would call a nice phone call in all sincerity. I felt like he, he gave me some answers to the questions that I, I did have about about fatherhood and and Jewish identity and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, you know, frankly, it's advice that in a really twisted, ironic way, I do cherish that I do. I do consider at times, you know, even today, he also told me, you know, quite a bit about about his family's history and where the, where they came from and things like that, that. And when I hung up, you know, the call, made me think why would you tell me these things if you didn't think that i was right about about what i was leveling at you there was no reason for him to provide as much context about his own family and his own personal upbringing unless he was trying to tell me without telling me um essentially you know who i came from or, or where i came from and what my roots were this is unreal and it was it was unreal. Uh, it was just one of those things where you you hang up the call and you, and it feels like everything else that you need to to get through. In fact, I was at the gym at the time, finishing my work. My workout felt like the most <laughs> inconsequential thing right. that I could imagine. You're like, all right, ten more yeah. reps. Yeah, exactly. This is crazy. Okay, so here's what's even crazier. I never do this. I want to stop now. I just don't know exactly where we left off. Don't worry. I listened to it uh, before <laughs> calling you. Um, and so what had just happened was you were at the gym getting oh, buff. Yeah. And you, <laughs> and you were just doing some reps. And then you talked to your uh, biological father mm -hmm. Um under the guise that you sort of wanted to know more about Judaism. And then you suggested that maybe he was your father. Um, right. And he didn't say absolutely not. That's impossible. But he also didn't say yes. He kind of gave a weird, vague answer. Um, right. And that is literally where we left off. Where we left off. <laughs> um, okay. So you, like finished up some reps. 
<laughs> and can I talk? I can say like, oh, I was so huge. Like my muscles yeah, were really totally, big. Totally, totally. Yeah. Like it was perfect. Like could, yeah, we could see the veins bursting. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's awesome. I'm sure that's exactly what everyone will want to hear. Totally. Um, I'm looking right now, at David Barry, guys. Washboard abs. Washboard <laughs> abs. So yeah, after hanging up on this phone call with him, I sort of had this moment of disbelief that like did this really just happen not only all of the you know the wild things that i had started to consider were possible and a lot of the things i'd set in motion by getting his known daughter to agree to take a dna test uh, but the fact that i'd actually spoken to him was was pretty jarring and so one moment you're focused on you know finishing your workout and the next you're like uh this feels really anticlimactic to go and just do another couple sets. And uh, in fact, I, I don't think that I did. I think I tried and then realized I it was a fruitless effort and I should just stop and, and go home. Question. Um, yeah. Was it like, I have, I have a, like, there's a moment when I found out um, like my DNA discovery. And like, for me in that moment, like, like I really did understand the experience of like the world sort of turning and like sort of Alice mm-hmm. in Wonderland feeling of looking through the looking glass and feeling disoriented. And did you feel that way before when you when you found out that that possibly the doctor was your biological father? And did you feel it again now after this conversation? Was there a difference? You know, weirdly enough, I think the on paper, the thing that might have been most disorienting was the potential that the my biological father was the doctor. But that's not how it actually happened to me, I think, because for a period of time, it became an increasingly weird possibility. And I had spent a lot of time weighing that before I got to a place where I was going to confirm it and ultimately, um, you know, got the results. But prior to that, I think the reason that everything else seemed so big was because it came without any sort of preparation, the discovery that my dad wasn't my biological father was like a bomb dropped in my lap. And then the the truly the most disorienting part of this whole process was a year after discovering or, or being told rather that my uh, that I was conceived through a sperm donor and thinking for a year that I had two other half siblings, that it was just the three of us in a new tripod. And then discovering a year later that we had twins, uh, twin sisters was the most disorienting part for me, even though in the scheme of things, it seems a little small. I'm, mm-hmm. But in that moment, it was just not, it was another thing that I wasn't expecting. And I think at this point, <laughs> I've wisened up to the fact that I should expect everything. Expect so everything. I feel less caught off guard. But what I will say is the conversation left me in what I think is a place that I have spent a lot of time, which was this weird, almost purgatory space, <laughs> which felt like there's there was warmth to the conversation I had with with the doctor but also a lot of resentment and frustration and just you know ambiguity around what i was supposed to feel and and i think i was just sort of like struck by that and it was like being stuck around in a whirling you know type of topsy-turvy environment i think the way that you described it and but more than anything i just felt more assured that i was doing the right thing by trying to get this answer and the longer, in fact, I remember from the time I got in my car to leave the gym and the maybe 10 to 15 minutes it took me to get home, I became more and more confident that I had I had the answer and, and that I had 
done the right thing because I'm thinking, man, if again, if someone had called me and told me this was a possibility, I would have just said, no, <laughs> no right. way. There's, there's not a scenario where this might have happened, but that never happened. And mm-hmm. it was the first time in a long time that I had started to feel like I wasn't on the border of losing my mind. Right. <laughs> I felt like, okay, you're not, you're not crazy. Right. So, so validating. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways. And then in a very literal sense, uh, I want to say that it was maybe two weeks after that, I've got my timeline maybe a little bit messed up, was when the email test results showed up in my my inbox. And his daughter and I had agreed to, his known uh, social daughter and I had agreed that we would open the results together. So I would agree to, um, to share my screen with her. Uh, on my computer when I opened the email so that she would see it at the exact same time as I did. And the results, you know, scanned to the bottom. Some of the language you know, to this day, I don't understand, mm-hmm. but I did understand 99.9999% probable, mm-hmm. <laughs> probable mm-hmm. match. I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was, it was not as jarring. You know, I've sort of already said this. It was not the jarring experience I expected. If anything, I felt sort of relieved because part of me believed I would never figure this out. And that that I would, you know, a lot of people would go to their grave um, before I was ever going to get an answer to this. And so I felt I felt relief. Number one, that I wasn't crazy. And number two, that at least as I could fathom at that point in time, that I had answered the questions that I had. And it didn't feel um, it wasn't good relief, um, but it was it was relief of some sort, Mm -hmm. certainly. How did his social daughter react with you? You know, I'm trying to picture that exact moment, but I think we both had that mixture of like a serious um, reaction, but almost like a nervous smirk sort mm-hmm. of creeping onto mm-hmm. our faces, which Chuckle. is like, mm-hmm. yeah, when you just don't know what the right reaction is that we sort of shared that another interesting experience because you can sort of see that reaction on a face that looks like yours and animates the way that yours does. And we, yeah, it, it wasn't and for me, I can, I cannot mm-hmm. speak yeah, for her, right. for but for me, it was, you know, not the mountaintop experience that I might've thought it would have been. Um, but it was really validating to know I wasn't crazy and I had a lot of gratitude toward her as well. I mean, sure. I, I think we talked about this, you know, a little bit earlier, but I don't know anyone else, a, a known social, you know, child of, of one of these physicians who has volunteered, never mind it, you know, agreed to, or but actively volunteered to do this. I, I don't know of one. Yeah. And the, the courage, you know, I, I feel like a lot of these are cliches, you know, courage and bravery, right? But mm-hmm. What I've, you know, a lot of people say, oh, wow, I'm really proud of you for handling it the way you have. But like, I don't know that I had a choice. She did. Right. She had a choice. Yeah. And yeah. It's I, pretty I un- see bravery. Pretty unbelievably that. generous from where I'm yeah. sitting. Yeah. Yeah. Unequivocally. And, and then to, you know, expedite the timeline a little bit more, my son was born um, a week and a half later. Woo! And, yeah, yeah. You're, going, you're going through all sorts of life changes, <laughs> like all of it, existential yeah, I, realizations. Exactly. Yeah. Life's not happening fast enough. Let's put it on overdrive. Mm-hmm. Totally. It Let's was, take away sleep. You yeah, we what? don't need that. Are you going through a lot? <laughs> Let's just eliminate sleep from this, from the not, variable. Not necessary. Yeah. Put that on the shelf. It was one of the things that 
is going to be stuck with me like a lot of this will will always be stuck with me but was the fact that he was he was in the room with me when when I first held my son and I didn't invite him there and mm-hmm. I, and of course I'm not saying he literally showed up to the hospital um I've never met him in person but I I couldn't escape the the thought of him because it, it was almost again to riddle us with clichés I could I could feel my dad and and my biological father, the doctor, there with me when I was holding my son, um, and not totally by accident. I had spent a lot of t- spent a lot of time thinking through that, you know, that dynamic, if you will. If mm-hmm. um, that, in mm-hmm. some ways, I'm a product of the man who raised me. I'm certainly carrying traits and characteristics of the man whose DNA is in me, and my son is a product of all of that. And I'm sitting here right. and forgetting all of that the miracle of childbirth has also just taken place mm-hmm. and and i'm sitting there holding you know my my son for the very first time wow it was it was one of the more singular emotional moments you know I'd, i've i've had i remember holding my son and staring at him in awe for all of 10 seconds before i just lost it mm-hmm. and just held him you know close to my chest and just sobbed and and held on to him for dear life because I was afraid I might I might drop him, uh, which I did not. And you know I I, I think would have I taken also... such a weird turn if you're like and then I dropped my son. Yeah. <laughs> now that would have really really yeah. added some uh, some uh-huh. pizzazz to like, our story. I didn't see that coming, David. You didn't. Yeah. I've I've always wanted to keep you kept you on your toes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that I I also felt another degree of relief in a weird way because I didn't like the feeling that he was in my mind in that moment. Mm. But I also not like I was, you know, I'm some sort of a martyr for having taken the bullet. Um, but again, I mentioned this earlier. I hope this is never a weird thing for my son. I hope it's never a question of his. I hope it's just something he learns, he knows, and whatever. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's something he can file mm-hmm. away because you know, and this is something I've wrestled with and because at a, at a basic level, yeah, my, my parents lied to me. We'll, we'll call it a, a lie of omission for the most part. Um, but you know, ultimately withheld information I'll say, and I understand why that they did. And I don't want to be one of those people who thinks they know everything because they have more information, you know, 30 some odd years later than whoever it was did in the past. So, right. Uh, and there's no benefit in it either. I, mm-hmm. I either have to choose to accept it and move on or stay angry and, you know, hold hot coal in my hand and I'm the only one getting burned. Right. Um, so, and, and I don't harbor resentment toward my parents, but the reason I, I mention it is I hope it really is so inconsequential to my son because I, I bothered to go through and, you know, find all, all of that information. And I hope he's nonchalant about it. I really do. I right. hope he ne- never even cares. Right. Um, and I hope that's a, it's a a gift for me to give to him that I hope he never sees as a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. He's like, well, here comes my dad again with that story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We know, we know. <laughs> we, donor, we got it, doctor. Put it, put it down. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'd mentioned this before, but a, another wild card <laughs> to his life that I don't have as much control over is my wife is adopted. So it's, and she does not know anything about her her biological family, so it's entirely possible at some other point that we might uncover those things, and we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But at least for, for what at I can speak for, at least you guys for. have walked the path before him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right? we, You're like, oh, DNA discovery. 
hop on like we got, got this yep. yeah get on the express <laughs> Exactly. I say there's no book for these things, but I think we're in the process of writing it. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was it was a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a, a lot of big emotional events to pack into to one at one time. Well, congratulations on the birth of that son. Thank you. I'm just thinking about too. I've never thought about this, but I I have never thought about the moment a man holds his son in the hospital room. At birth or in, at the moment you know at the at the, at the mm -hmm. newborn moment and realizing i don't even know how to describe what my brain is doing right now but it's like unfolding like the layers are coming out about recognizing the role your father who raised you role was and that he held you at birth mm -hmm. and the different the small difference of of him having that exact same experience accept that knowing that that you baby you was not of his dna and whether that was consequential to him or not in that moment really trips me out for you <laughs> like it really trips me out for you in that moment it's interesting that you would say that because it was from the very first time i had that conversation with my dad the, the day that he told me that i was not his biological son i i understood his pain and his fear that, you know, I wouldn't feel like he was my dad, but I never really understood it until the time I held my own son. Yeah. And, you know, gun to his head, which in a literal sense, I've never tried, but I, I have asked my my father directly, you know, did you ever think of me or look at me differently? You know, what, with even just a little bit of an asterisk or a question marker or anything. And he's been unequivocal that the answer is no. And, mm -hmm. and, and God bless him if he feels that way. I, I'm grateful that that my son is is also my biological son, but I don't I don't feel romantic uh, about it the way that maybe mm -hmm. I, I would have mm -hmm. once upon a time. But um, but I thought about my dad uh, a lot in that moment mm -hmm. and certainly in saying, OK, if someone had come in and tried to take this from me or the fear that this could be taken from me, I I understand that now. Mm -hmm. And and that was in a weird well, not a weird way. I think in a lot of ways, maybe that's the, the gift of a, of a father. When you become mm -hmm. one, you have a new appreciation for, for the one that you had. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was an emotional blender <laughs> at, at that time. And then, I mean, not to abruptly put us on the next path of, of the story, but life, life resumes. There's mm -hmm. you know some, some kind of, I won't call it normalcy because at least for me personally, then there was, you know, parenting a newborn um, and going through a bunch of stuff at work. But one of the things that I guess was not, you know, on my bingo card of expectations going into this was what I would do next. And I, I think I've acknowledged, you know, readily that a lot of my motivations throughout this entire process were, were selfish in some ways. I mean, yes, they had the potential to provide clarity to a lot of other people, but I wasn't necessarily doing it for them. I was considering them as a, by, a byproduct of what I was doing for me. And that's very honest of you. Because it doesn't do me any favors to pretend otherwise. I've, I've developed a, a really, I guess, good relationship with the truth. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, frankly, that's another thing that I want to, you know, give to my son as well is, is the truth. 
and I don't want to ever withhold things from him, you know, intentionally. I mean, if there's, you know, little things like, no, you've got to go inside because you've got to eat and he doesn't want to, then, you know, I'll, I'll think of another reason to, to get him to come in. But when right. it comes to sub, <laughs> sub, you know, substantive truths, I don't ever mm -hmm. want to, you know, hide from that. But anyways, as, as that goes along. So when this all began, I guess, down the path of me trying to find out who my biological father was, I, I believe I had mentioned Eve Wiley had put me in mm -hmm. contact with some, some folks from the DNA angels. And also through that, there was a writer from the New York Times uh, who had written about, you know, DNA discoveries in the area of fertility fraud, who had had an interest in writing about my story in particular, because she had, I may be wrong in this, but I want to say she had either confirmed at the time two or three other physicians in Rochester, New York, Whoa. who who had donated, um, donated, who had used their own sperm on their, on their female patients. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Donation, my ass. Mm -hmm. um, it's fair. And um, <laughs> so, you know, for obvious, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, exactly. So for obvious reasons, Rochester being a medium sized city, but not so, yeah. a huge one, the prevalence of that in one geographic footprint was, was story worthy. So right. ended up, being in the New York Times a few weeks later, I was on Good Morning America, and that led to some visibility, which I, I jokingly call like, you know, celebrity of like the lowest mm -hmm. order right. um, <laughs> of being in this, you know, this small little corner of it. But anyways, it afforded me an opportunity to meet um, Kara from from Right to Know and some other folks who were doing some what I'll call activism, legislative type of work to not only be there and provide resources resources for people who are going through situations like this or or ones that are similar or even just you know a late life discovery that you're adopted and you know with no other surprises other than the fact that you didn't know i suppose but there was also the i guess revelation or ongoing revelation that you know people are like oh my gosh well so the doctor is probably in jail now right and he's lost his medical license right and i'm like nope and nope what he did you name the doctor uh, in the, in the article, in the, on the, in the article. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. At that point, once I was able to confirm and I don't know if I've actually done that here. Um, but his name is Dr. Morris Wortman and he's been practicing for uh, a long time in, in Rochester, New York. And I know has done a, a lot of good and sure. you know, has also done a lot of not so good. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, a product of, of wrestling with this, which is how angry can you really be at the person who made your life possible? But I've learned also that two truths can be existing at the same time. Right. Did, did, uh, did he know you were going to go on TV and name him at that point? No, no, no. He, but he you had, never... you, you had the DNA proof that he was your father. So it wasn't slander or libel or whatever, all those. Correct. Yeah. And, and frankly, the reputation of the, the news organization's would never have allowed you know something like that right yeah 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 for you to just go on and just like talk right. about who you, who might be your dad yeah i figured exactly. but i just was I'm yeah. just imagining it, what his morning was like that day <laughs> i can't imagine it was it was a great one um uh -huh. i mean the last time he and i had ever spoke which you know granted had not been all that long prior um he was not even of the mind that i you know knew who my biological father was i suspect he didn't think i was going to find out and so yeah it was it was probably um, an interesting morning for him, although I know that the 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 editors of of the Times had reached out to him and his attorney for comment and they declined. Um, so, but yeah, it, it ended up 
providing me this, you know, this opportunity to do something about it if I if I wanted to. And, you know, I won't say that I um you know, sought it out necessarily as much as it kind of because it was presented to me as an option and felt like a good way to make something of, you know, my my experience mm-hmm. that it it became sort of easy, right? Like they say, you know, 90% of life is showing up and really all I had to do was be a person with a weird story um, who was willing to show up. And through that, uh, since then, you know, again, I where I left off was at least in New York State that is one of, at this point, I want to say 38 or 39 states that do not have uh, active fertility fraud legislation. They're working on it in New York. Um, but yeah, when people are floored to understand that even today, he's still practicing medicine and there's been no you know, licensure um, issues with him or anything like that, the legislation that's on the table, both in New York State and now at the federal level, is designed to address that head on. And, you know, a lot of the legislators that I've had a chance to to meet with um, on Capitol Hill in DC, which is a really disorienting and humbling experience, like all at the same time, I feel really fortunate to have, and look, I'm a government skeptic, uh, like a lot of people probably are that, you know, the wheels of government move slow, and they don't care about the average person. That might be true in a lot of things. Um, you know, I'm sure legislators themselves don't get all jazzed up and join politics because they want to talk about tax code. But I can tell, you know, from a, I, I believe, you know, from a genuine place that a lot of the the members of the House of, um, of Representatives that we've met with on both the Republican and Democrat side have acknowledged to us that this is the type of thing that they get enthused about because they can know that there's going to be an impact on real people and not hypothetical impact. And one of the things they articulated to, you know, several of us who had gone there to meet with them and, and tell them our stories was the law is an imperfect thing. And it's, it's you know, at times, especially with technology, the way that it is in the DNA space and a lot of other areas now is playing catch up for things that were never anticipated. There was not a scenario, I think, you know, especially in an era of donor anonymity that that veil was ever going to be pierced. Well, it has been repeatedly. Uh-huh. By, uh-huh. by consumer DNA testing. And, you know, one of the things that we had, we had talked about a lot is the sanctity of, of a doctor's office should be just implicit, but especially for a woman who's going in, not just because she decided, you know, on a Friday to go to visit her gynecologist. No, she is there because this is her last resort. It's not because, you know, she's, you know, out to have fun. She doesn't have other options. She wants to have a family at this point, it's the you know early '80s for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, she's there because she needs a, a solution. Period. And at her most vulnerable, she has been lied to. And people will say, "Well, you know, what if they didn't think what they were doing was eth- ethically wrong?" And you know, aren't that aren't you guys here anyway? And I'm like, if they didn't think it was ethically wrong, they would have no issue disclosing this as an option. And none of them did. Right. Not none of the doctors did. And certainly not when you multiply it by the number of, you know, women that they've done this to, they didn't disclose mm-hmm. it to any of them. So that to me, anytime I'm wavering on, oh, was this really so bad? No, they had an opportunity to disclose or at least provide it as an option. And none of them did. So I, I hope that, you know, that I'm there on, on the steps of Capitol Hill. And I have this vivid image, you know, in my mind, which has been colored in a little bit more having been there a couple of times to testify on this behalf of this legislation, but I hope I'm there, you know, side by side with a lot of the 
those like me and, mm-hmm. and others not like me who've, who've gone through this. But one of the ironies that we continue to come across is I was in, in DC in, um, in, in January. So two months ago, and we had a round table with members of the house uh, ethics committee, or I'm sorry, the house judiciary committee. And we, there were six of us and we were just sort of struck by the fact that none of the people testifying were the, the first victims, meaning our mothers, it was all of their offspring. And one mm-hmm. of the things that sort of put a little, you know, uh, Cheshire cat, you know, grin on our face was the irony, the karmic irony right. that the, you know, the karma coming back to them is going to be in the form of the offspring that they created. And I know in a lot of ways, you know, I acknowledge that I had some selfish motivations. I don't, I don't really feel like it's as easy to say that anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. I have, you know, an opportunity for, for women like my mother, who I don't think ever would have spoken up for themselves. um, Mm -hmm. And, and who have a really hard time articulating their greatest joy and their greatest, you know, wrong or a wrong that was done to them. And and I can completely understand why a woman like that would have a hard time, you know, going to, you know, to speak up and say like this thing that brought me my my child or my children is a thing that I don't ever want to have happen again. Um, so immensely complex. It's that's a but, that's an understated word and probably the yeah, best one. For, like I'm really like I'm really maybe putting myself in is you know in in that place in my imagination for the first time as much as I can right now while you're talking. And I, I am like an outspoken, um, I can be crude. I can be, you know, I'm not shy about my life. You know, like there's lots I can talk about, but that is, that's a new level. And, Mm -hmm. and to think about when you said vulnerable, like there's nothing more vulnerable than these women coming in in their last resort the levels of vulnerability you were talking emotional vulnerability but then and literally physical vulnerability um in the position you know i don't like doing this exercise but i think not too graphically but i imagine like a woman in stirrups in a cold room yeah maybe alone you know for for moments of time when the the doctor or the pa is you know outside of the room or the nurse or whatever in, in the case of our mothers, quite literally, um, mm-hmm. because the doctors would go to the other room to retrieve the fresh donor. Um, and we mean masturbate. That's right? exactly what was <laughs> like, happening. And, so... and, and thank you, you know, because that was one of the things that came up. Like, we want to find these euphemisms that make it mm-hmm. feel safer and, right. and you know, keeps, more comfortable yeah, no. to say. No, there's a doctor who said he was going to, you know, give you a, a live donor sperm. Instead, he looks at you naked presumably at least from the waist down walks out into the room looks at a porno jerks off into a cup and comes back in in a state of arousal and then inserts his semen into his patient so gross right so there's a lot of other ways to say that that don't yeah. come across as, as graphic and totally no, that, but that's exactly have, I think what it is we have to keep doing that yeah because it takes... because if you don't you minimize what has taken place yeah. and, but that's what happened that's what took place multiple times and it sucks and it's not yeah. easier to say it's not easy to hear mm-hmm. and that's anytime i which i don't i don't question you know the the long road that may be required to see legislation passed um but if i ever do get to a place where i'm saying oh, is it really worth it 
those types of anecdotes mm-hmm. will, will help me, you know, be reminded of right. it's not too soon. And, mm-hmm. and how many others are there who, you know, mothers who are ashamed to even address it with their own families? Yeah. You know, like I think about that and I say like, man, if all I have to do is just repeat something that has happened to me, I don't have to go do, you know, new work or anything like that. I don't have to put together a presentation like I do for my clients. I just have to show up and tell people what happened. I can do that. You can do that. Yeah. Amazing. So what are you working on? Uh, like, what are you doing? Like, I want to say like right now, like, what are you doing? But mm-hmm. so do you, you work specifically? Um, yeah. What are you? Well, I guess that's the question. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what do you do? So, what are you doing right now these days? Yeah. And, well, so and then also after that, let's, well, I'll get into it, but let's talk about, don't let me forget. Let's talk about how can people learn more, where yeah, should absolutely. they go, all that stuff. Sure. So if I'm in, in, interpreting the question the right way, by, by day, I, mm-hmm. uh, I run I run an advertising agency and we're having our seventh birthday in a few weeks. So seven years in business. And that's, that's my day job. Um, but in terms of, you know, what I'm doing now, as it relates to the, the things that we've mm-hmm. been talking about, and I will say this is, you know, perhaps part of the the second question as well, which is we are playing the you know the long game of reaching out to more uh, members of Congress and their rep- legislative uh, aides in particular, and and showing them number one, you know, the language of the bill uh, as it is, but also making a case for this is a good thing to be a part of. Number one, it's kind of a no brainer. It's bipartisan, and it feels good uh, to you know to put your name against this. And we are essentially, you know, and I don't want to say we are the only ones, but as a core group of six, if you will, who's who's been in uh, Capitol Hill most recently, we are trying to reach out to either uh, representatives from the state that we were, or specifically the districts that we were born in, but also the ones where we currently reside. For many of us, that's not the same place. So I live in Miami, Florida, and I was, you know, born and raised in Rochester, New York. So I am fortunate to say that both of the legislators that I reached out to from my old home district and my current home district, uh, Joe Morelli in Rochester, New York, and Maria Elvira Salazar in uh, Miami, both of them took an opportunity to to meet with me and both have co-signed their name to legislation. I am incredibly grateful to both of them. But this is the part that always feels like, like, you know, Charlie Brown, where no one really hears the words of the teacher. But it's it can be as simple as saying, you know, look, if you live in Ohio, if you live in, you know, Illinois, wh- wherever it is that you live, being able to say, you know, I have a friend that this has happened to, there's this piece of legislation, this is the bill number, HR 451, by the way. Um, Don't worry, the that's the title is... of Eve Wiley's episode, which is coming up. Ah, there you ago. go. <laughs> yeah, right. HR 451, right. is that what we're talking about? <laughs> so we'll continue to hammer mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, is frankly, that's that's the biggest thing is we're, we're playing the long game because there's other legislative priorities. But we're also recognizing that the more names that we can get uh, co-signed onto this bill, the better chance we have of getting in front of Jim Jordan, frankly, who's the House of the Senate, uh, the House Judiciary Committee, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, who can ultimately determine the the expeditiousness of this by bringing it to uh, to a vote. There are, to the best of my knowledge, thirty two legislative co-sponsors on the bill today, which I think is in my you know focus group of one opinion a really strong number for something that was um, formally introduced less than two months ago. And it is. And the more momentum we can get around that, uh, the better. And I, and so that's a big focal point of, 
you know, one part of your answer. And then the other, as it relates again to what we're talking about is like, like a lot of us who've been a part of this, we've probably written extensively about it. And I, I have a background in writing that was sort of my foray into advertising originally. And I started writing a, a memoir about my experiences first as a method of therapy <laughs> to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. take what didn't make sense in my brain to hopefully make sense when it came out on paper. And, and I finished it before I found out who my biological father was. Um, oh, and before really? I started, yeah. Whoa. Okay. Bef- before I started, you know, doing some legislative stuff. So I've, I am in the process of rewriting that, but the title of this uh, memoir that is uh, not available for sale, but hopefully will be uh, at some day in the future. There's as a somebody who is, has been an author, but there's the you know literary agent and querying process, which um, which I'm familiar with and, and hoping to go back through. And um, and the title is My Father's Son, a True Story of Fertility Fraud, Identity and Fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And it's my my hope that that'll be on a bookshelf uh, at someday in the, in the near future, but yeah, get it out. That's what we're going for. Now I just got to find someone who, uh, who wants to take a flyer on a stranger uh, like me. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not famous. So that's, that's a <laughs> something working against any memoirist, I suppose, but, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm up to. Awesome. That's so great. So the best thing that people can do to help is to contact their local um, mm-hmm. legislation. They're, they're, their state legislation and in their districts. And that's, that's correct. In fact, even more specifically, I would say, you know, look, there's a lot of people who may not even know the name of the, you know, their representative in their district, but it's, it's easy, you know, type in the, into the Google machine, you know, who's the, you know, the representative for, you know, insert name of city here. And in fact, to take it even a step further um, would be to, you know, look up the name of the the legislative aid for um, for that individual. Um, so, you know, in my case in here in Miami, if I wanted to know who the legislative aid was for Maria uh, Elvira Salazar, type that in, find that person and, and send them an email. I will say most of them are pretty good about responding within a few days. And if you don't hear from them, you know, same as anything else, you follow up. I can assure you there are real people on the mm-hmm, other side. Mm-hmm, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. go into, uh, you know, some sort of ghost inbox. And I think we've all been very pleasantly surprised by the the support. And, and yeah, it, it can be a simple request if you want. Um, I can, you know, leave my email address and for somebody to message me and I can help walk them through it as well. But yeah, sending those emails. And, uh, and if anybody lives in Ohio uh, and lives near Jim Jordan's district, he in particular is a very important person in this process. So, so feel free to reach out to him as well. But okay. Did you hear that Ohioans? You guys are, are having a lot of rough times lately with your trains flying off the tracks and right. all that. So let's, let's get you a win here. If you mm-hmm. can. Uh, yeah. Help come us along on. This Easy win. Right. Um, something to feel good about. Yeah. Right on. That's great. And I will make sure and have all that information. Um, I will have it. Uh, it will be in the show notes of the, of the, podcast when when this is playing um i will make sure and have um a link to finding finding your your representative um and i will have any 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 other information you give me to that's important as far as getting getting a hold of you or following more closely about what's going on with advocacy uh for legislation cool go Um, you (laughs) yeah 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 so this is this well and wait okay i'm sorry one more question Mm mm-hmm has anything happened between, like, what has happened to the doctor? 
Like, I mean, I know that he's not in jail, but yeah, nothing. I mean, what's happened to him is his Google review has gotten worse. Um, I mean, so that's credit something. To, that's something. It is, it, it is something. <laughs> it is something. So credit to, um, and I'll actually, I'll give a lot of credit to Laura High, who is a, um, she's donor conceived, not through fertility fraud, uh, thankfully, mm-hmm. but she's a, a comedian, comedian and an actor. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually just sent her a link to schedule a thing with her. Oh, there you go. You'll you'll love her. Um, She's funny. Mm-hmm. As as it happens, she actually was a, a close friend of my first half sibling that I discovered. Um, the two of them were good friends in college, and uh, who who would have known that they Perfect. ended up sharing that in common? But she came to us, uh, came to us, came with us to DC in January and did a lot of really funny um tiktok videos that mm-hmm. a lot of them went viral and she got a lot of her followers to go in and, and start trashing the ratings of a lot of these doctors on google who are still practicing and whoops a daisy awesome. um sorry so, hmm. so but but so that's hard when that, there are consequences to your actions that is something to consider next time um but yeah to the extent of what's happened to him that's that's kind of it okay wow that's interesting Bad google ratings mm-hmm was there anything I was supposed to ask you that we didn't, that I didn't ask you? Like, is there something you always talk no, about? That I, I don't have like a catchphrase either or like a, okay. <laughs> or a, a sign off. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. No. Um, right. Yeah. If, I mean, I don't know if this is going to sound weird, but like you, you created an environment where, um, where, where this happened, you know, like mm-hmm. the first wave of our conversation was substantive, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you for that. Oh, this was great. This was my pleasure. It was so fun, even though it was not a fun story. I know what you mean. You know? Yeah. Um, fun is okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you're like, what the? <laughs> this lady's nuts. You're like, Did I just have a different two hours than she had? <laughs> um, and I get to see you next week, which is so cool. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Everyone's going to be like, what's up with you guys? Oh, they're so cool. I want to hang out with them. I want to sit at their table. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I did get to be with Dave in real regular life a week later at the Untangling Our Roots Summit in Louisville, and it was just as great as we hoped. I mean, I guess I can't speak for him, but I had a nice time. Uh, One highlight was sharing an Uber to the DNA Angels dinner together, and he showed me a picture of his adorable son. Well, that's it this week for this episode of Everything's Relative. If you felt moved even a little bit by this story of doctors masturbating willy-nilly for their patients, please contact your representative and ask them to learn about HR 451. I made it really easy by including links in the show notes. But, um, wherever you're listening, you should be able to access that easily. And hey, while you're there on the podcast listening platform, would you review this podcast? Give it some stars, write a note. I think I'm going to do something new for the rest of the season. I'm going to read a review of the week. Today's review is by someone named Jane. And she wrote, important stories. I love this podcast. Well put together, compelling stories that need to be told. Thank you, Jane. Listeners, you too could be featured here as a review of the week. Is that cool? Write one. Everybody wins. Let me know. Find me on the socials. Share the podcast with your friends and come back soon. Thank you so much for listening to Everything's Relative. I appreciate all the ways you support me and this project. Give yourself a pat on the back. Smile at a stranger today. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis 
is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaylin Egan and edited by Joy Rumel. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions. Okay, that was easy. Um, I'm going to plug these guys in so the audio is better too. Hmm. Is this on? I can hear you. If that's what you mean. You can hear me, but not through this. Oh. There we go. That's what we were looking for. Whoa. You just got like so, really, you got like really deep into my head right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is really disorienting, right? It feels like yeah. I'm talking like inside of, well, even my own body. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's wild. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's better. <laughs> okay.